Hi, ladies. Welcome. Welcome to Women in the Word. It is a great day to be together studying God's Word. I am more than glad to be here with each of you. It gives me great joy to be with a group of women who love God and love God's Word. So thanks for being here with us today. Uh, you know, I have never really had a desire to write a book. There may be some of you out there that have that heart and passion. Maybe some of you have already written a book, uh, but that's never been, I'm a great reader, I love to read, but I don't want to have to write one myself. However, over the years of being a mom to three boys and now six grandsons, if I was ever going to write a book, I know what it would be. It would be called Mom in the Middle. Mom in the Middle, because my experience with fathers and sons, and I've had a little bit of that in my years, is that they don't communicate well to each other. I was always standing in the middle of their discussions and their disagreement, saying to one or the other, I was kind of like this. I would be saying, no, no, that's not what he really said. Uh, no, no, that's not what he meant, trying to interpret between a father and a son uh, who weren't very good communicators because what I discovered is that boys and men have a tendency not to hear with their ears and certainly not with their heart. They hear with their testosterone. That's what they hear with. Uh, and if you're a boy mom out there today, particularly a teenage boy mom, you'll know what I mean. Now, we don't have a mom here in 1 Samuel 14, but... Uh, there is a father and a son, and they have profoundly different hearts and certainly profoundly different relationships with God. So let's look at that together. Look at verse 1 with me, and then we're going to skip down to verse 4. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. See, that's that communication thing I was talking about. Look down at verse 4 with me. Um, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. Um, the name of one was Bozez, the name of the other, Sina. One crag rose up on the north in front of Michmash, and the other in the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us." So at the end of chapter 13 that we looked at together last week, the Philistines were camped at Michmash, and now Saul has moved his 
army a little bit south to a place called Gabea. If you look on the map you have in your notebook, you're going to find both of those just north of Jerusalem. So the Philistines um, have camped, but they're continuing to send out raiding parties every day. And what they do is they block the roads into Michmash so that their army is protected. But they're also sealing off Saul's army down at Gabeah so that he can't head north and the northern tribes can't come down to help him. So the, the threat of the Philistines is really great and grave. And the Israelites are clearly at a disadvantage here from a human standpoint and from a military standpoint. They're outmanned and they are out-equipped. But, you know, Jonathan's perspective here, as we start out in chapter 14, um, is not on the negatives, is it? He's not thinking about all that. His perspective is simply one of faith and courage and certainly an incredible obedience. He knows God's plan for Israel. He knows it's God's will for Israel to be saved from the Philistines and for Israel to drive their enemies out from the land he gave them. We read that back as in chapter 9, verse 16, as God says this to Samuel. Look on your verse sheet. Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. It is God's plan and God's will to save Israel from the Philistines. And if God wants the Philistines out of Israel... Jonathan intends to be part of that plan because he is a man with an incredible heart of obedience. So here he is, armed simply with his faith in God as his leader and the deliverer of his people. Jonathan hatches this plan to attack the Philistines who are on the other side of a huge ravine that separates Geba from Michmash. And he's armed only with his courageous obedience and one guy, his armor bearer, his armor bearer, and both Jonathan and his armor bearer, we see they're both all in. They're in on this plan. In fact, a literal translation of the Hebrew here for the armor bearer's words is, I am with you like your heart is with you. And Jonathan is going to need that kind of loyalty from his armor bearer uh, because that's his only companion. And his plan really does defy military logic, doesn't it? He gives up the element of surprise because they're going to go out and show themselves to the Philistines on top of this cliff and call out to them. And um, then he has to climb up, rock climb up a slippery, pretty tall rock embankment that is going to separate, that currently separates uh, Israel from the Philistine army at Michmash. And those guys are waiting at the top for them. They know they're coming. And it's such a crazy plan that it is only going to succeed if the Lord does give the Philistines uh, into their hands by his divine plan and power. So let's see if that's what happens. Look at verse 11 with me. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. 
When Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after, after him. And after that, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within um, an acre of land, and there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison, even the raiders, trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So we see that Jonathan's incredible uh, faith and confidence in God is not misplaced, is it? His heart believes. His heart believes that nothing can hinder the Lord, and he acts on that uh, belief with courageous obedience. Jonathan is really living out God's words to Moses in, from Moses in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That personifies what Jonathan is really doing here. Jonathan recognizes the difference between human strength and strategy, what he could do with just one man, and the divine intervention of Israel's God. He hears the sign that apparently the Lord had placed on his heart, given to him somehow um, before he started up that cliff, as the Philistines say to him, sure, You guys, come on up here. And he shares his confidence in the Lord with his armor bearer because he turns around and shouts out to his armor bearer, the Lord has given them to us. You know, he didn't say to his armor bearer, I think we can overpower them. I think we've got them. Or we've outsmarted them. What he says truly is that um, the Lord has already worked on their behalf. He professes that to his armor bearer. Now, you have to think about what the Philistines are probably doing here, standing at the top of that cliff, looking down at these two, climbing up to them. You know, I think they're kind of poking each other. They've got their swords ready. Definitely, they're shooting arrows down at these guys climbing up the cliff, probably throwing rocks down on them. And they're ready as soon as those guys climb up over the edge of that cliff to just run them through with their sword and push them over the side. That's what they think is going to happen. But when uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer reach the top, God delivers everything that Jonathan expected. Every one of those 20 soldiers waiting for them are killed by Jonathan and his armor bearer. That is Um, unbelievable odds because I think they only had one sword between them. And the huge result of Jonathan's heart of obedience to God's will is the beginning of a rout of the Philistine army that day. The news of the defeat by Jonathan and his companion quickly spread through the entire uh, garrisons of the Philistine army that are camped out a few miles away. It's big news. Two Israelites against 20 very hardened Philistine soldiers. That is big news. Of course, they were helped along by divine um, earthquake, weren't they? I think that probably helped spread the panic through the Philistine camp because what the Philistines now are discerning, uh, each and every man is thinking, Israel's God is mightier 
than our gods. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. So Jonathan's actions here may seem pretty foolish from a human or a military standpoint. But what they really are is a blueprint for a heart of obedience. Jonathan followed God with this courageous obedience because he knows God is faithful. He knows God is faithful. He wants the Philistines um, out of Israel. And with that heart of obedience, Jonathan trusts God faithfulness. He wasn't foolishly climbing that cliff to go to his death. He was climbing because he knew God had already brought victory. He was confident in that. God is a faithful God, and all Jonathan needed when he got to the top was God. It didn't matter how many Philistines were at the top of that cliff because God was there with him. I've been reading a great book recently. If you're a reader, write this down. You may want to read it too. It's called Women Who Risk. And it is incredible stories of women from fundamentalist Muslim families in uh, fundamentalist Muslim families in the Middle East who meet Jesus in these unusual ways. They meet him through dreams and visions and random encounters with other believers in the middle of a Muslim refugee camp. And these women who meet Jesus go on to share Jesus wherever they are with an incredible heart of obedience, even though their families are plotting parties in which to kill them, to behead them. Um, But despite the constant threat of death, and almost every one of them says, I know I'm going to die. But in spite of that, they follow God in courageous obedience. And it's story after story of them sharing the gospel and leading other Muslim women, particularly um, to Jesus. They have confidence that their God is faithful. So no matter what cliff or obstacle you and I are going to face today or tomorrow, Jonathan's lesson about a heart of obedience stands true for us. When we follow God in courageous obedience, having confidence uh, that he is faithful, that's what we're called to do. Look at Deuteronomy 7, 9 on your verse sheet. Know therefore that the Lord your God is faithful, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And Deuteronomy 28, 7 says, The Lord will call your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Like Jonathan, we can all face our enemies with a heart of obedience because our God is faithful. But let's take a look at Jonathan's father. There's a contrast here. Look, we're going to start with verses 2 and 3 and then skip down to 16. So Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Okay, look down at 16. And the watchman of Saul in Gabeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count to see who has gone for us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. 
So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now look down at 23. We see the outcome there. So the Lord saved Israel that day, um, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So what we have here is while Jonathan is obediently pursuing the enemy to drive them out of the land, his father Saul is camped comfortably under uh, a canopy of pomegranate trees uh, at Gabea. He's surrounded by his army of 600, so he feels pretty safe. And he has Ahijah there who's with him, who's actually um, a rejected member of the priestly house of Eli. He's secure, he's resting comfortably, and he seems pretty unconcerned uh, about failing to do God's will in driving out the Philistine. So what we have here is Saul is waiting while Jonathan is acting on God's will. Now, the first clue for Saul, our clueless Saul, that something is happening with the Philistines is his spies actually have to come in and say, hey, we're seeing what's happening over there. Something is happening with the Philistines. They are running around in a panic. And Saul is so unaware of what's happening with the enemy and what's happening in his own camp that he has to count his men to discover that his son Jonathan is out fighting the Philistines. He has no idea that any of this was going on. And it's only once he sees that the Philistines are running off in panic, does he decide, oh gosh, maybe I should join this battle now. And the first thing he does is summon the ark. Now, some of your translations may say ephod. um, And whether it's the ark or the priest's ephod, Um, It could be a very wrong move by Saul if he intends to use the Ark of the Priest's Ephod um, as a good luck charm. If he's just calling for it because he wants to use it as a talisman like the uh, pagan armies take their carved idols into battle with them, that is a wrong move. What should happen before Israel goes into battle uh, is described by Moses in Deuteronomy 22 through 4. This is what should happen. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God, he goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. It is the presence of the Lord alone who brings victory to Israel. There is not a good luck charm involved. And Saul goes on to show how truly blind his heart is to the things of the Lord because he cuts off the priest before the priest is able to finish his words about God's victory here. Um, Saul looks around and thinks, the Philistines are going to get away and I haven't even gotten into the battle yet to prove that I am the conqueror here. So in haste, 
He decides he should act immediately. He pursues the Philistines without waiting for the priest to finish the Lord's blessing. He's finally doing the right thing here, isn't he? He's finally heading out to drive out the Philistines. But he's doing it without the right one, without the one true God. But Israel's God is faithful to Israel, and he still saves Israel despite the blindness of Saul's heart when it comes to truly knowing God and pursuing God's ways. God causes the Israelite army to swell, uh, to, to gain numbers. 600 men were not enough to fight even the panicked Philistines. And so God caused those Israelites that had already rebelled and just joined the Philistines out of fear and those who had been too afraid, those that were hiding in the caves in the hold, uh, he causes them to suddenly have courage and to fight on Israel's behalf. The battle that had begun by Jonathan's obedient heart is being won by um, his faithful God, despite his father's blind and clueless heart to the things of God. Okay, let's look a little bit further and see what our spiritually clueless Saul does next. Look at uh, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Okay, so uh, we see... Saul's shortcomings here, not only as a faithful follower of God, but we see his shortcomings as Israel's king. He doesn't grasp the concept that his fighting men are going to need some kind of nourishment to sustain themselves through the battle. He's blind as a military commander, isn't he? And as he pronounces this oath, this curse on anyone that eats during the battle, what he does here is he calls the Philistines his enemies, not God's enemies. Israel's enemies are not simply a threat to Israel's king or Israel's sovereignty as a nation. Israel's enemies are a threat to their holy God. Every battle that Israel fought and won was for the glory of God, not the glory of Israel's kings. And with this unnecessary oath that Saul um, pronounces for his people here, what Saul is really doing is trying to assert himself in place of the Lord as their true commander. And it is the Lord that is the commander-in-chief of Israel's army. You know, we saw Saul's actions last week where he did not wait for Samuel before he offered a sacrifice before the Lord. And here we see that, see that this foolish, foolish oath um, has nothing to do with God's law for Israel. Um, Saul's blind heart is showcased by this foolish rule that he imposes on his soldiers. He really has no heart for God at all. He may have some knowledge of Israel's laws. He knows their rituals. But what we see of Saul is that he doesn't really have a true relationship with Israel's God, even though he was called to serve Israel's God. 
I was in the Connect class at Christ Chapel the last few weeks on Sunday morning, and the Connect class is um, a great opportunity for you to learn more about Christ Chapel and to perhaps pursue membership. And someone in that class shared their story of being raised all their life in church. They had a Bible all their life. They knew um, in their head some things about God, but it wasn't until they were in high school, actually, and they were on a young life ski trip, and they heard the gospel with their heart. They heard the gospel with their heart, and they met Jesus, and he changed their heart. You know, their experience with God went from their head to their heart, and they began to pursue a deeper relationship with God. When we look carefully at Saul's life, what we can see is that he knows some things about God, about God with his head, but his heart is really blind uh, to the God that Jonathan knows so well with his heart. You know, even if we have experienced salvation by grace through faith alone, our hearts can still be blinded to God's truth as well. We can still be blinded to God's word and the things that God has for us if we don't actively pursue an intimate relationship with the living God. And you know the amazing thing about God, this just always is overwhelming to me. He's sitting there waiting for us. He's sitting there waiting for us at any moment to come to him and deepen our relationship with him every single day. Look at James 4.8 on your verse sheet. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's waiting for us, ladies. He was waiting for Saul as well. We can avoid the blindness that plagues Saul's life by drawing near to God every day, having knowledge of his word, your blindness. But it looks like Saul never found it. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Look at verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand in his mouth and his eyes became bright. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So we have Jonathan, whose obedient heart and faith in God has begun this battle uh, that is going to give Israel victory on this day. And he unknowingly violates an oath. There is nowhere in God's law, which Jonathan would know, uh, that the men are forbidden to eat during the battle. There are some other things that the men are supposed to consecrate um, themselves with that are part of part of God's law, but this is not one of them. And so Jonathan was out fighting the Philistines while Saul was pronouncing this foolish oath uh, as a burden on his uh, soldiers, which is clearly not what God's law said. Um, Saul is doing things his way here. 
He's not doing things God's way. He's not worried about, well, what of God's law should I remind my soldiers before battle? No, no. He's just thinking about his own need and desire. Jonathan is clearly revived by the honey in the forest. Uh, and when one of the other soldiers sees him, he tells Jonathan of his father's oath. And Jonathan's reaction here, I thought this was... Um, uh, so incredible because his reaction to what his father has done is immediate and it's insightful and it's wise. As a soldier who had been in the battle all day long, he sees his father's oath not only as unnecessary, but he sees it as an undue burden on the people. Jonathan's assessment of his father's leadership is spot on. He knows exactly what his father's done wrong because it is Saul's foolishness and his pride. It has kept Israel from having an even greater victory. They could have not just caused the Philistines to run off that day. They could have completely defeated them that day if he had not pridefully insisted on um, his men fasting during the fight. You know, one of the things I was convicted of as I have studied through 1 Samuel is that Jonathan would have made a great king for Israel, wouldn't he? Um, not only did he have a true heart for the Lord, but he had the heart of a leader. He was always concerned about those around him. Um, and he wisely looked at his father's leadership through the lens of God's truth, and he was more than willing to call out Saul's failure as a leader for exactly what it was, it was harmful to God's people, and it was harmful to God's purpose. Jonathan clearly sees Saul's mistakes, and he wisely evaluates Saul's leadership, not based on avoiding controversy with his father, which he could have done. Um, he simply knows God's truth. He knows God's purposes, and he sees how Saul's oath is contrary to both of them. You know, Jonathan's example for us here is timely because we live in a post-Christian world. And as God's people, it is the lens of God's truth and God's word that wisely helps us evaluate the decisions of our leaders. It's not politics. It's not the media. It's not family allegiance that should guide us. When we evaluate our leaders' decisions, whether it's in the church or out in the world, it is God's word that is going to give us wisdom and truth and direction to see our leaders and their decisions clearly. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's exactly what he did. As much of Germany's people and even their churches became influenced by Hitler's schemes to exterminate the Jews and take over the world. You know, much of the church in Germany gave in to the Nazi regime. But Bonhoeffer, as a, a, a pastor, never wavered in viewing Germany's leadership through the lens of God's word. He never stopped preaching about it either. And it's reported that he was such an incredible man of prayer and obedience that he showed that um, obedience and heart for the Lord right up to the second that they hanged him in a German prison camp in 1945. Hopefully, none of us are going to pay with our lives, but it is our calling as well to wisely evaluate the decisions of our leaders through the lens of God's word.
Okay, let's read a little bit more. Look at verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. They ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord um, by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people. Um, let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered them there and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So we see the full result of Saul's prideful heart here. Ejelon, that they mention here, is 17 miles from Michmash. So that is how far uh, his army and his soldiers had to chase the Philistines. Um, and they had an incredibly hard day. They were literally faint from hunger. And as the battle ended, what they did is round up all the livestock uh, that they had captured. And they were so hungry that they slaughtered it and ate it immediately instead of hanging it up and letting the blood dry, drain from the animals. And because of that, they violated a well-known mosaic law. They would have all known that that was sin. Uh, eating animals without allowing the blood to drain. And so Saul, he's directly responsible here for Israel's sin. His um, foolish, unlawful oath to fast while they fought has led his men um, into sin before the Lord. His pride, his own pride uh, at being king and asserting himself uh, is not just a stumbling block for his life, is it? His pride has become a stumbling block for his people as well. That's an incredible thing about pride. It doesn't just trip us up. It often trips up others as well. But we see here that Saul's reaction is actually pretty interesting. Uh, and, and I studied this for a while, trying to sort this out. Because when he is told that his men are sinning against the Lord... And he has to be told, that's interesting as well. It's unclear as to whether he wasn't with them and didn't see it, or he was with them and he just didn't pay attention to the fact that what they were doing is sin. But he appears to do the right thing here. It, it seems like the right thing to st that he builds an altar and stops them from breaking the diet, dietary laws. But it also tells us that this was his first altar. He'd never built another altar before, meaning he had never been called in his own heart to stop and honor the Lord. But we also know that it's the only altar he ever builds to the Lord during his uh, extended kingship. So it's really hard to tell from the words here whether this could be that little spiritual spark where Saul has just an inkling that he should genuinely uh, honor the Lord or if he's only going through the motions here, that he knows the uh, rituals of the Israelites, he knows they're supposed to slaughter their animals on the altar and let the blood drain, and that he's simply trying to make amends after being called out by his men, after being told by his men that the army is sinning. 
Um, I'm not convinced after studying this that his heart is truly motivated to honor and worship the Lord here, but I'm sure that God himself knew uh, where, hearts, where Saul's heart was that day. Um, okay, let's read a little further. Look at 36. And then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man among them. And they said, do what seems good to you. But the priest said, let us inquire, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For, the Lord, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Okay, so Saul is finally motivated here to fight the Philistines. Uh, Jonathan's courageous attack, which is going to give them uh, the edge in the battle that day has, for some reason, finally lit a fire under Saul to continue the attack through the Philistines, which that's a good thing. But the priest has to come and remind him, hey, we really don't go out to battle um, as a nation until we consult the Lord first. So uh, it's one more time that we see where Saul is just acting on his own without having a thought that the Lord indeed is the commander-in-chief of his army and he should always consult the true commander-in-chief before he goes to battle. He's acting on his, Lord, on his own uh, authority one more time. But when he does consult the Lord, the Lord doesn't answer him here about attacking, and we see Saul's pride again. He decides that, hey, I'm not getting an answer from the Lord because someone has sinned by eating. Someone has violated my oath uh, to fast that day. And what we see here is that Saul's um, pride is really out of control because he's elevating his foolish oath to be equal to God's law. You know, breaking Saul's oath to fast that day meant you were breaking the king's rules, but not God's law. It was never sin against God. So that can't be the reason that God is not answering Saul here. More likely, God did not answer Saul that day because Saul's allegiance isn't to God. God clearly sees that Saul's allegiance is to himself. Saul's allegiance is all about his own vow and someone breaking his vow. He's not concerned about his army having allegiance to him. God's silence is not about someone breaking uh, Saul's oath. It's about Saul's heart of arrogant pride. Arrogant pride. Look at Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And Saul's arrogant, prideful heart is not finished making bad choices. He just keeps piling them on one bad choice after another because on top of the foolish oath to fast on the day of the battle, now he adds an oath on top of that where he vows that anyone who broke the first vow is now going to die. And they go on here to cast lots, and the lots point to Jonathan. So now his own son 
faces the death penalty over an oath that shouldn't have been given, that he never heard, and Jonathan had no way to know it existed. Look what happens at verse 43. And then Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lived, there shall be not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. We have both Saul's heart and Jonathan's heart clearly on display in these verses. Saul's prideful heart is so out of control now that he's willing to execute his own son simply to assert his authority as king over God's power and authority. Jonathan's actions continue to reveal his heart as well, isn't he? He never wavers in light of his death sentence. I think his faith in God has him trusting whether he lives or dies, the Lord is faithful. Um, he willingly submits himself to the authority of his father and his king. I can't even imagine what it must feel like for a son to realize that his father is willing to sacrifice his life, not for a noble, godly cause, but for a prideful, selfish, wrong cause. And I have no doubt that Jonathan knew that it was a prideful, selfish, wrong cause that his own dad would execute him for. Fortunately, not everyone in Israel is so deluded as Saul. The men of Israel, um, I'm, I was very proud of them here. The men of Israel, they get it. They see and they understand that it's Jonathan, not Saul, who has brought a victory uh, to Israel over the Philistines that day. And he's done it with his heart of obedience and his faith in the living God. They see and they understand that breaking the king's law is not on par with breaking the law of the divine king. We aren't given any insight into how Saul's prideful heart reacts to this humbling defeat by all of his people, uh, except we do see that he gives up the pursuit of the Philistines here. He doesn't continue. He doesn't go after them. And we also see that he lets the remaining Philistine army get away. He's the perfect example of another familiar proverb. Look at 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Saul has um, done his best uh, to reap destruction on Israel and he has taken the fall. You know, our chapter ends here. We're not going to read these last few verses um, except the last verse. Anyway, it ends by summarizing all the um, numerous military campaigns that uh, Saul has as Israel's king. And it also gives the name of Saul's family. If you read through those names, it was interesting because it mentioned 
Jonathan and Michael, two of Saul's children, and they are going to play significant roles in David's life as well. We're going to see that in the next few chapters. But the final verse gives us insight into God's limited blessing on Saul's kingship, and he attached him to himself. Saul spends the rest of his life fighting the Philistines. And it says fighting hard. These were not easy battles. And he spends the rest of his life trying to build an army by grabbing up and constricting conscripting any man that was able-bodied in fight. And it actually, it's interesting because it fulfills Samuel's prophecy um, as the nation begged for a king back in 1 Samuel 8, 11. It's not on your verse sheet, but I want to read it to you. This is Samuel's prophecy when they wanted a king. Uh, Samuel tells them, there were, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen. For the rest of his life, that's exactly what Saul did as their king. He took their sons. Saul was a king who never yielded his control of his life to God. He never yielded control of his kingship to God because he never really knew God. He never really knew God. And because all he had to depend on was himself, his pride and his selfish motives ruled his heart and influenced his leadership as king. You know, Saul and Jonathan really are a study in opposites. We have a blinded, prideful father who has little heart for God. And then we have a wise, obedient son who has given his whole heart to God. Our final lesson, as we look at the hearts of both of them, is yield control of our life to God. And if we do that, just like Jonathan, it's going to um, protect us uh, from having a prideful selfish heart like Saul. Thanks, ladies. Let me pray for you. Father, you're um, a great and a good and a gracious God. And Lord, we're asking that you would give us um, wise and obedient hearts like Jonathan. You would protect us from uh, being prideful and blinded and selfish like Saul. Father, I thank you for these ladies who love your word, who love being together, who love worshiping you. You are a great and a good God. And we pray these things in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.